0: Father, we know that your thoughts are not our thoughts, and that your ways are not our ways, and that your ways are so much higher than ours, that your power is uh, limitless and from, from the creation of the world to, to the ultimate consummation of, of all things. Uh, we know that your sovereign hand of providence is, is the one that governs all things. So we gladly uh, this morning confess that our minds aren't able to lay hold of your uh, infinitude. Uh, help us then, we pray, as we uh, weak and, and weary sinners, uh, to to rest in the confidence that, that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of yourself is stronger than than men. Give us strength and wisdom so that we can understand more of you this morning even as we sojourn through this life and give us uh, the patience that we need to endure suffering and humility to submit to our earthly authorities uh, we we pray that you would work in us to play, uh, bear bear witness to who you are through our lives here on this earth for your glory and for our joy in you So we pray that you would accomplish these, these requests by your Holy Spirit through the preaching of the Word and and the following sacrament this morning. Uh, For your name's sake, in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and read God's Word together. We'll be in verses 18 through 23 and we'll read through 25. Really these go together, but uh, there's so much richness here, we're going to break it up, um, so we'll read from verse 20, uh, 18 through 25 this morning. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Amen. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I'm quite aware that, that preaching sermons on suffering and subjection aren't the best way to win a popularity contest, um, but here we are again, a second week on the same topic, and really the whole book of 1 Peter in some ways revolves around those topics, and I think that's one of the great benefits of preaching sequentially through books of the Bible as I wouldn't choose to preach on this topic twice in a row. I might occasionally bring it up, uh, but God's word constrains me by his grace, and I'm grateful for the constraints that he puts on it, because these are difficult doctrines, but they're uh, wonderful doctrines. I've come to really cherish the doctrines of submission and suffering. I think the reason I've come to cherish them is maybe more than any other doctrines. These type of doctrines are where the rubber meets the road. This is where Christianity and life sort of intersect. So through the doctrines of of suffering and submission, we really get to learn about how how does the Christian life look? How is it borne out in the world? Um, So... The first thing people naturally think of when they hear the word subjection or suffering is weakness. Uh, but more more and more as God has worked on me and through his word, exposure to his word, I've come to see subjection and, and suffering as power more than weakness and glory more than weakness. Because I think it's, it's as we make that shift in understanding that we really begin to have joy in, in our suffering. When we truly begin to obey that command, one of my favorite commands from uh, chapter 1, verse 13, to set our hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because our suffering really points out to us that that's where our hope is, that ultimate hope when Jesus comes back, that's our hope and that is our ultimate glory. Peter has uh, painstakingly proclaimed through this book that our future glory is really its an untold glory that we don't even know how good it will be. But he's pointing out now that our present glory is the glory of joining with Christ in his crucifixion. So Peter here continues his topic, uh, this this discussion on this topic in verse 18. Last week we looked at uh, our submission to the government, to those authorities that God has put in place. Now, Peter shifts his focus to the relationship between slaves or servants and masters. He gives us another command. Then he proceeds from the command to kind of answer, I think, some potential questions that his audience might have. Um, So we'll begin again with the command in verse 18. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to... The unjust. So the word that Peter here uses for servants isn't the normal word. You know, we read last week, beasts, "be servants of God," and I pointed out it's better to be translated "slaves of God" because it's the Greek word "doulos," which really usually means slaves. <coughs> here he uses the word "oikates," which you can hear the word "oikia," which means house, and so we get our word "economy." From that word, it's kind of the idea of stewardship. So these are kind of the, the household servants he seems to be addressing here, the domestic servants or slaves. Um, but here what he tells them is to be subject to their masters in all respect. So Once again, as I pointed out last week about our relationship with the government, This respect is not based on uh, personal agreement with the actions or the policies of the particular master. Subjection to a crooked master, really the word he uses there at the end where it says unjust, it, it means crooked. So, subjection to a crooked master, that's a difficult task, that's a difficult calling. And the injunction that they do so with all respect is even more difficult because I think respect speaks to the, the heart attitude of the issue. It, it's not hard to kind of put on a face of respect when the, the crooked master is in the room, but w- what about when he walks out of the room? Do we have that genuine heart of respect? You know, we're, Are we going to start slacking as soon as he walks out or talking behind his back about how crooked he is? So the power to, to maintain that difficult attitude is not really in the power of uh, positive thinking, like pretend that the unjust master is actually a good master. Uh, rather, it's in knowing that we serve the Lord. No matter how crooked or how bad our earthly masters are, we serve the Lord. This, this truth has sustained me many times through difficult or even just plain old ma- mundane uh, work experiences. Um, obviously not perfectly, but God has allowed me to make strides in an area that's difficult for me there. But when you look at just our basic work experiences, um, th- these, these words from Colossians have kind of run through my heads during different times, whether work has been hard to maintain a respectful attitude, or hard to continue working hard. Uh, Paul says in Colossians, again, Slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people-pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So the, these words are such a help to me because it's, it's not hard to maintain kind of a low-grade rebellion against our earthly authorities. I mean, if we're honest, it's really easy to point out there, there are so many injustices in the world, and they're real injustices, and we can see them plain as day. But I think if we, if we obsess over the injustices, we're going to drive ourselves crazy. So perhaps... Um, you know, maybe maybe we think we're worth more than we're getting paid. So maybe our response is, well, I'm going to work what, what I think matches the compensation I'm receiving. The hard part is, we, we have to let, learn to let go of some of the injustices. And to me, that's a great comfort and a great motivation because now I know that I have the freedom, though I don't really want to serve my earthly authorities, I serve Christ. I'm not duty-bound necessarily just to to be a humble slave to some earthly master who doesn't doesn't appreciate my work, but I serve the Lord Christ. And I think it's legitimate here to apply these types of of servant-master relationship passages to that employee-employer relationship, but we have to pay attention to the fact that they're not a one-to-one parallel. Uh, one major difference is a slave can't really just take a hike if he doesn't like his master. He's pretty much stuck with him. Where an employee, on the other hand, has the right and probably should seek greener pastures if he has an unjust employer. I see this principle kind of borne out in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 20-24. through 24. Paul tells them each one should remain in the condition in which he were called. Were you a slave when called, do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. But you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let, there, let him remain with God. So I think what he's saying there is basically it doesn't matter if you're a slave or a free man. You're free in Christ. But if you do have the opportunity to not be a slave to men, take that opportunity. Take the the better, the greener pasture, if you will. And so the point of subjection is not suck it up and stick it out so you can maximize your suffering. You know, By all means, if you have opportunity for improvement, take it. Uh, But rather, the point is, be submissive and respectful to those authorities who are over you. And not on the basis of their credentials, but on the basis of the freedom that you have as slaves of Christ. Peter's command, again, is to be subject to masters. And now he seems to answer a series of questions. And the first question is, why? Why be subject to masters. He says in verse 19, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. I have this image in my head of the domestic servant and maybe he woke up at the crack of dawn, he'd been cutting wood and hauling water all day, maybe his master was yelling at him, beating him maybe, Uh, maybe he didn't have much food and now it's late into the evening and he's tasked with cleaning out his horse stable into into the night before morning what is the mindset of that slave at that moment i think we've all had relatable experiences those moments where we're kind of emotionally and physically just depleted and we're no we know we're being treated unjustly where do our minds go in those moments for me it'd be usually anger <laughs> Uh, maybe wishing ill on the person, maybe cut as many corners as I can without getting in trouble. But Peter says it's a gracious, or uh, maybe a better way to and translate that is commendable, or Calvin says thankworthy. It's a gracious thing when, mindful of God, we endure sorrows while suffering unjustly, which I take to mean we're ever conscious of God, We're conscious that His sovereign hand has us where we are right now. We're conscious that we're His children and we're not of this world. Or We're conscious of that eternal inheritance He's going to give to us and that really the, the pain we experience in this world is but light and momentary affliction. And we are ultimately aware that that description of the good and the gentle master, that is ultimately God. So Peter here is saying it is commendable when we endure sorrows with God always in our consciousness. Now another question, second question. Why? Why again? Why? Who in their right mind sees anything good in suffering? What makes that commendable? That's the question Peter answers next here in verse 20. What makes suffering commendable? For what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. I think we've all seen those people, or even in our own hearts, where we retaliate against injustice, and maybe we don't care anymore if we're even disciplined for it. We're just going to say, I'm not going to listen to you, and I'm not going to obey you anymore. Peter here, he says, what credit is that? If you sin and you get the punishment... You kind of the scales are even there. You're balanced out. You get no credit. But on the other hand, in God's estimation of matters, when we endure punishment while being obedient, that that to Him is noble. That is a praiseworthy posture. So, once again, uh, Clowney has a great quote here. He says, "If the Christian responds in kind, good for good, evil for evil, he becomes merely a victim." When he is treated unjustly in burning resentment, he seeks the end up op, opportunity to repay the evil. But if he bears the evil patiently, he has broken the chain of bondage in which the power of the Lord in the power of the Lord. He shows his confidence in God's justice. He need not avenge himself. He also shows that his service is not really forced, but voluntary. He is willing to serve his master for the Lord's sake. His master cannot enslave him, for he is Christ's slave. He cannot humiliate him, for he has humbled himself in willing subjection. So if this world is all there is, then there's really no freedom in that posture of willing subjection to another person. If, if this world is all there is and there's no God, then it's true, true that it's only dog-eat-dog. Dog. It's survival of the fittest. And the person who has subjection over another is really the one who claims complete dominance, and the one who is weaker is always the one subordinated. But in God's economy, it's it's reversed. The the call to submit in humility ultimately ends up being a display of His power and His glory. And that's why we can talk in these sort of paradoxical terms uh, like freedom of submission. So Peter's response to this question, why enduring sorrows is commendable, is uh, that it's a gracious thing in God's sight, in God's economy of things. Now we can ask why again. Why is that? Why does God think that? So the third question: Why does God think that suffering is commendable? He says in verse twenty-one: For the, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. <coughs> so Jesus is the supreme example, of course, of what humans should look like, what Christians should look like. And if we, we are aliens and exiles in the world, how much more he? You know, if it's an act of an, a humility for we who are adopted and sons and daughters of God to kind of bend the knee to human authority, how much more is it for the Son of God Himself, the second person of the Trinity, to stoop so low that he would volunteer himself to the whips of centurions and ultimately to the cross? You know, crucifixion was the the punishment reserved for the lowest of the low, the basest criminals, the, the slave class of people. So the irony of that sign above his head on the cross shouldn't be lost on us. Here's the king of the Jews. Paul says in uh, Philippians 2, have the, he tells us to have the mind of humility among ourselves, which is yours in Christ, who through, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So nowhere is a more perfect human disposition displayed than in the incarnate God. And Peter here calls us to walk in His footsteps, which is something Jesus told His disciples to do: take up your cross and follow Me. Now, what does this example look like? He he tells us in verse twenty-two and twenty-three. <coughs> He says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. These are Old Testament allusions. And they're beautiful in this context of submissive uh, servanthood because these come from this, the servant song in Isaiah chapter 53. So Jesus was completely uh, flawless, it says, that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So this is, he's the epitome of that, that servant who does good, who suffers for doing good. He's not the one who suffered punishment for his sins. He's the one who suffered while doing good. And he went underwent the most uh, blasphemous of verbal attacks. When the centurions hit him and they'd say, tell us who hit you, or If you're God, walk down off that cross. But it says when he reviled, he did not revile in return. Or you know, he's the one who sustains all things by the word of his power. He could have smote these guys who were smacking him in the face with fire immediately. But he submitted himself to that to that abuse, to chunks of flesh being ripped out from his back. He remained submissive as they drove the spikes into his wrists. It says, when he suffered, he did not threaten them. So it is true from Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. <clears throat> So, the example of Jesus is the example of one who didn't take justice into his own hands, but rather it says he submitted himself to God, he trusted himself to the one who judges justly. And that's the example we're called to follow, the path we're called to walk. The Christian life is the crucified life. Now that to me again, as we've talked about, is, is counterintuitive because Peter's been explaining we're sons and daughters of God Himself. We're heirs of, of all that He has to give us, and we still are required to walk this path of suffering. But that's the means that God has chosen to glorify His people. Uh, from Romans 8, it says, The Spirit Himself bears witness, witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we also may be glorified with him. So the path to glory is a trail of patient, humble, submissive suffering. And we can ask God why in his providence he determined that that was the path, and if I'm honest, I don't know. I wish that he would simply just call us home immediately upon regeneration. Uh But he hasn't, and, and that's his business. But here's something I know. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. I also know this. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So the way I see it, where we've arrived in this sermon, is kind of what I would call the height of ethics. What we've seen is what anyone who can study the Bible or the life of Jesus can see. You know, count others more important than yourselves. Turn the other cheek. Be a servant of all. But there's more to the story. There's more going on here than kind of a a commendation to to take the moral high ground when your boss is, is a scumball. As Clowney points out, there's two themes really woven together in this passage. The first is the one we've talked about. Christ leaving us an example. The second theme is that Christ suffered for you. And the two, two themes are interwoven. You can't separate them. Because, as Clowney points out, the example of Christ is not just an example, it's a saving example. You may have noticed that I skipped over this theme in verse 21. He says in 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. So without the atonement portion of the sacrificial death of Jesus, at best it's just another great man of history dying for the promotion of his particular ethic. You know, Mother Teresa was self sacrificial. Socrates died for, for what he believed in. So there's more to the story. The atoning death of Jesus is not just a, a road map by which we kind of try to arrive at the right destination. It's the root of that tree of new life by which we're enabled and motivated to produce the kind of self-denying fruits that we read about in this passage. Because no one in their right mind is going to adhere to this crazy ethic on their own accord. Submit to unjust people. Undergo suffering for doing good. As my dad likes to say, there's not a snowball's chance in Florida that that's going to happen. We have to undergo some kind of change. And it has to be more than just a mere example. It has to be an efficacious example. A saving example, which brings with it a heart of flesh to replace the heart of stone. One by which, as we'll see next week, we die to sin and live to righteousness. There's one way that we can produce that kind of fruit. And that's by the wounds of another by which we have been healed the example of Jesus is a saving example. I'm going to close with a portion of isaiah fifty three says beginning in verse three he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom we men hide their faces, he was despised and esteemed not. surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So my prayer for us this morning is that we who have been redeemed by his humble sacrifice would find the freedom to submit and to serve and to suffer in service of our loving Master. To do so by his grace and for his glory. Amen. <clears throat> Let's take our hymnals again and we'll stand sing what a wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. Hymn number 175.